Welcome back to Manhunting Sports. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here with Nextlander's Alex Navarro and Philly's Dia Lucina to continue our journey through the career of director, writer, and producer Michael Mann to examine his timeless themes of craft, labor, and capital, and dudes rocking. So, the last film we discussed was Last of the Mohicans, a sharp departure from Mann's post-keep career, focusing on crime drama and procedural Chronologically, the next film he made was not just a return to his favorite subjects, but in many ways a distillation of them into what is widely regarded as his definitive masterpiece, uh, Heat, starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and supported by a legitimately staggering cast uh, of talent. However, Heat is a remake of an earlier TV pilot turned TV movie that man made, L.A. Takedown. Now, Alex, I was not mm-hmm. even aware that it existed before we embarked on this project and we're discussing like how we should do this. But one of the early markers you put down was that we needed to watch L.A. Takedown. <laughs> yes. Why is L.A. Takedown an essential watch? All right. So like you, I went through many blissful years loving heat and having no idea that this thing existed. And only in, you know, just sort of like offhand looking up stuff did I happen to come across. I was like, what is this thing? It says Hannah is the cop. He already made that movie. So Michael Mann famously wrote the screenplay that would become heat based on a true life story of a Chicago cop who uh, was tracking down a fairly, uh, fairly notable bank robber, uh, you know, heist guy in the Chicago area. And the story specifically was about him literally running into the guy at like a store or a parking lot somewhere in the middle of it. And obviously he was not in a position where he could arrest that guy. So it was sort of like a what do I do here kind of moment. And that kind of spiraled off into what eventually became the screenplay for Heat, which was about a 180 page screenplay that he was wanted to produce uh, in in the time after Thief. But that kind of got put off to the side. And then at some point, the idea was brought up of what if we pitched this as a TV pilot for uh, NBC? So he cut 110 pages out of this thing. Uh, tried to turn it into a TV pilot, hired some guys to play the parts, and then uh, the network was not super hot on the lead actor, Scott Plank, who uh, would eventually be replaced by Al Pacino in what has to be the greatest divide between two actors playing the same role outside of actual porn parodies. Um, And so they eventually, they pass on the pilot, but he reworked it into a TV movie, known as L.A. Takedown, otherwise known as L.A. Crime Wave, and a variety of other things, depending on which region it was released in. Uh, and then it was promptly forgotten by just about everyone. Uh, but well, eventually he went on to pitch this, go on to make Heat, and Heat, you know, Stone Cold classic of the dudes rock, of the heist, of the action movie genre. Uh, and this is, I think, to me, fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, not just the gulf in quality between the two things, but because I cannot think of another example of a director unwittingly or you know, not necessarily planning this, but essentially duping a network into letting him film a rough draft of what would eventually become what is, I think, among many people, like his most singular film, like the thing that everyone kind of points to when they point to Michael Mann. And... That just as a as a film, okay, I'm not a film scholar, but as someone who likes film and you know is interested in the history of film, I just think it's a fascinating thing. 
Yeah, it's um the the porn parody phrase came to my, leaped to mind. Yes. Uh as I was watching it because that is like if you know heat that is the vibe of LA Takedown is like it's familiar enough, you know what's going on. Uh but at the same time at every turn you're kind of like what why does it look like this? Why is this person playing this character this way? Um how this person get cast? You know, thing things like that. Um, so things you wouldn't have considered in 1989 when this thing first aired because there was no frame of, of context. But I think just about everybody who has seen this thing in the ensuing years has probably seen Heat first, except for one person I know uh, who is also on this podcast. Yeah, it's actually really, really funny because I knew about this. Ex- technically, I have known about the existence and, you know, like long before. Um, I even like considered watching Heat before I was on this podcast. I knew about LA Takedown from all of the guys who insisted I needed to watch Heat and then also watch this. I wasn't one of those guys. Just to be you clear. were not I, one of those guys. Yeah, I did not try to voice this on you. No, no, this is this is like you know, LA Takedown was one of those things where it was just like you're in the middle of blowing a guy in your apartment in college, and he starts talking about well, Michael Mann's you know magnum opus heat was actually the you know the culmination of a rough draft and you just be like get the fuck out of my apartment (laughs) we've all been there so that that is not a reader i married him moment no uh that is (laughs) that is i can't yep uh wow you really you really work some work some shitty crews uh that's that's a true born to lose tattoo moment of of cinephile uh so before we dive into this further, let's let's establish that this is Heat. It's the same story featuring the same characters, but with a much more limited budget. Uh, in fact, when we talk about Heat next, it's it's going to be easier to discuss that film in terms of its departures and additions to this, or maybe restorations. Yeah, uh, re- re- re-addings of things. Uh, because I think those choices maybe bring Heat and Man's focus into, uh, make it a little clearer than it is in L.A. Takedown. Uh, but yeah, the root of L.A. Takedown is that story that a longtime man collaborator and former detective Chuck Adamson uh, told about uh, chasing a thief in the early 60s, Neil McCauley, uh, whose biography is pretty close to what James Kahn's character is in Thief. Uh, but it's a story that sort of fascinated man uh, that these these two ended up meeting up for coffee and apparently like chatting uh, before they ultimately uh, encountered each other in a shootout. L.A. Takedown fleshes this out into the makings of a tragedy. Uh, the makings of a tragedy. I'm not sure it gets there. <laughs> no, it but doesn't. It is, the, it is the makings of a tragedy. Uh, it opens on an armored car heist gone wrong, uh, led by this crew of thieves uh, helmed by Patrick McLaren, uh, who is a renamed Macaulay, who would have his name mostly restored to him in Heat. During a meticulously planned robbery, a contract gunman named Wayne Grow, played by Xander Berkeley. Um, I only mention this because, again, it is such a it is such a sharp departure from what eventually will be immortalized in Heat. Also, the Xander only Berkeley- actor who is in both films. Wait, wh- who's Xander Berkeley in? He's Ralph. Shit, I had to demean myself with Ralph. Yes. Oh man. 
We'll we'll talk about that more yep. when we get to Heat. But uh, yeah, Xander Berkeley is the only actor uh, who is in, appears in both of these, and it almost feels like he ended up in Heat as an apology for what he is forced to do in this one because Wayne Grow needed some work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes berserk during the robbery and kills two guards, uh, causing McLaren's crew to execute the survivor to eliminate any witnesses. And that triple murder brings the case to robbery homicide detective Vincent Hanna's desk, uh, who is newly and apparently happily in a relationship and who will try and balance this pursuit against maintaining a functional home life. He stumbles across some crucial clues that let him find McLaren's gang. Uh, but McLaren quickly sniffs out that they're being watched and turns the tables and begins surveillance on Hannah's uh, team of detectives. The two men meet in a diner almost by accident and in an odd way, manage to relate to one another and uh, sort of put their cards on the table as to what they can, what each can expect uh, from their final encounter. But, and here we have some uh, crucial differences the two are also L.A. takedown revolves around two really divergent path trajectories of uh, their respective relationships. Uh, Vincent Hanna's uh, relationship sort of hits the hits the rocks, uh, but it is also maybe a little more sympathetically portrayed uh, than what we'll find in Heat. His uh, his partner uh, wife makes the case that she is increasingly being used to. Uh, fulfill like emotional labor and process the trauma he experiences as a police officer uh, while basically enabling him to be a neglectful and largely absent partner uh, as he, as he chases down crews of thieves. Meanwhile, McLaren becomes a wife guy in the making uh, in this story. And the thing that ultimately causes him to forge ahead with uh, a massive heist in, I think my old neighborhood in LA um, is that he has got himself a girlfriend he cares about for the first time, maybe ever, and needs one last score uh, so that he can go straight and run away to be with her. It all goes wrong because Wayne Grow is still out there uh, looking for revenge after uh, McLaren's crew tried to kill him uh, to sort of tie off that loose end. He leaks the details of the plot uh, to the police or finds a way for that information to make its way back to the police. They are ambushed coming out of a bank robbery. Uh, and one member of uh, McLaren's crew is killed. Tons of bystanders are mowed down. Multiple cops are hit. Uh, but crucially, McLaren and one of his accomplices uh, make a getaway. And the rest of the film is uh, a manhunt. And also these two guys trying to figure out what piece they need to make. Uh, before the end of this film, uh, McLaren tries to patch things up with his girlfriend, who is understandably shocked to see his face on TV uh, at the center of a gun battle. And Hannah tries to uh, also patch things up with, with with his wife. And crucially, McLaren has a window of opportunity to escape, but chooses not to because he has to go settle up with Wayne Grow uh, bef before the end. And that is where, in a very different scene uh, than we find in Heat, he and Hannah ultimately have their final encounter, uh, and McLaren and Wayne Grow are both killed, and the film ends with almost a very diehard-esque, um, a diehard-esque uh, moment where Hannah is leaving this hotel in L.A. Uh, and finds his wife waiting for him 
and it appears that domestic peace has been restored uh, in the wake of this case. Describing that. Yes. I don't think does justice. No. To how different and weird this feels. And I kind of can't. I mean, everything about it feels strange. I think Dia, here, I had one, one quite one thing that leaped out at me is, is some of this just like associations and judgments to make about quality. When I see this ki- type of like film stock with a four, three, four, three aspect ratio for TV, like, is there like, does this read as sort of like slipshod and low quality? Um, just because of how often these aesthetics appear in 1980s TV, or does this does this actually like scan to you as maybe awkwardly as awkwardly put together as it does me? No, it is. <clears throat> it's actually really interesting. Like, um, so first of all, the cinematographer for this is Ronald Victor Garcia, who is the cinematographer among many other things, the pilot for Twin Peaks, um, a number of episodes of Silk Stockings. Mm. And fire walk with me, which is okay. just like heavy hitter. Yeah, like it's just kind of like batshit because this is so. Um, it was really interesting because like I actually found myself really compelled by the cinematography of this because it's so foreign to anything we see now. Yeah, like this has like no modern context at all. It is so different. Um, you know, the four by three aspect is so claustrophobic. Even scenes that are supposed to be kind of expansive are just like so cramped up. The where they stage the armored car heist, where the the thing that happens is they they launch a dumpster, uh, like like one of those dumpster hauler uh garbage trucks at the armored car and goes speeding along this highway and sort of t-bones the the armored car and flips it. That is meant to be. It's an outdoor location. It's expansive. The entire thing feels like it's taking place in the hallway. And it's just because of the way that frame crowds in and creates this this narrow field of view to the point where, like, it's being shot in the location. But, you know, it ends up feeling a lot like a really tiny set. Well, it's like we do like the 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 conversation through like the driver and passenger side door windows a lot, you know, in that opening sequence and like throughout. And it's just like these like very weird like feeling to them because it's not like, you know, we're not seeing anything else. We're just kind of, you know, they couldn't get the camera inside the car. <laughs> so yep. we're just kind of yeah. getting this weird cramped shot. Um, there's, but like, there's yeah, a it, couple of those. <clears throat> yeah, there's like a bunch of them throughout. And it's just like. You know, um, you know, compare it to something like, uh, you know, some of the other scenes like in in uh, man does them in another in like thief does uh, a few uh, if I remember correctly. But like those are much more like we're going to get a bigger shot of like the scene and the location. We're going to place it in a context. And here it's just like your guys in a car. It's just. Yeah. That's what you get. There's a particular one of those that it's like midway through where it's it's Hannah and a bunch of the cops all in the same car. And the whole scene is you can tell they took like two takes of that because it is just it is Scott Plank rushing through his lines. He is not listening to the other actors. He like Michael Rooker is just sitting there staring the whole time. (laughs) Like it's those scenes. Obviously, they compare poorly to Heat. But that's the stuff that to me even compares poorly to stuff like Miami Vice, where mm-hmm. it's like there is a there is a slickness and there is like a I don't know, there's just a quality there 
even in like some of the crime story, which is, you know, a little bit lower budget, there is there. You can see what they're shooting for, even if they don't always get there. There are a lot of shots in this that feel like they just blew through this stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting because like, you know, like growing up like this has been like right around the time when I was really kind of paring to pay attention to television. Like I was like, I guess six when this came out, but I didn't see this at the time. But like shortly after this, you get Silk Stockings. Right. And like I was, you know, that was my fucking show. Um, <clears throat> and compared to like this, you know, like Silk Stockings was filmed in four by three. It was shot like, you know, like, you know, television with like a USA network budget. Like it was nothing like to write home about. It was, you know, standard television. But like compared to this, it was way more slickly produced and shot. And like this is just like it does it. This feels really janky even for the time. Well, I mean, like, you know, coming off Crime Story and Miami Vice, I think both of like I think all of us look at those shows and aspect ratio aside, like they still look cinematic. They yes. still they they still feel They're distinctive. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, to your point, Alex, as well, like for the most part in every scene, the players are pretty involved in the scene. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think they get that uh, consistently at all uh, throughout this film. I also just had this feeling that like, was the steady cam like a precious resource at this point? <laughs> was the tracking shot like a thing you say. had to say? Um, because there's so many shots where it's like, wow, this is a fixed camera position. Uh, and we are just cutting between like, uh, you know, plan like where Hannah goes and talks to a CI. Right. right. And he sort of uh, buttonholes this guy in his apartment. That's like they try to establish is full of like contraband. But when Hannah goes in, it's not really like appropriately laid out. Like you see the stack of contraband in one shot, then it's gone. But they end up having a conversation in this like tiny cramped uh, like L.A. kitchen. Um and I actually really like the set. It is like, it, like it is a utterly convincing microscopic uh, apartment. Like, you know, we've, like we know exactly what type of place it is, but at the same time, it is the fact that like, we can't follow any of the action through the space. It is literally just, it feels like the camera is balanced on like an open fridge door and just like shooting the room. And that's, and that's all we get. And that, that's sort of a consistent, like, it feels like a consistent marker in this production of just like places where you expect some dynamism from the shot ends up being just supplied by cuts to different angles. Yeah. Um, and it's, kept, yeah. What I kept thinking about throughout the entire time watching this was police quest Four open season. <laughs> The, okay. It's the really like the really the the genuinely terrible. Um, is that the uh, Daryl Gates that's one? That's the Daryl Gates one. Okay. Yes. Um, but check like, out Duncan Fife's retrospective. Yes. on that for um, uh, Waypoint. Yeah, uh, that was like, fucking really good. But like, you know, it does have this kind of like the camera is like just kind of balanced somewhere in the room. And we're just going to film every shot that way. And then no one's really committed to like being in space or like committed to their lines or their characters or what's going on. And it's just kind of ugly and like static and happening to you. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the the heat comparisons just yet. But one thing that is notable about this is that I and I don't know if this was standard for the time or not, but they had about 10 days of pre-production on this thing and they shot the whole thing in like less than 20. So 
they did, in fact, rush through this pretty fairly. And I'm guessing there was not a lot of room there for them to really plot out what they wanted to do with the camera in this. That uh, that explains an awful lot. Yeah, it uh, does. In terms of in terms of like how slapped together uh, this feels in places. I think I think also I actually ended up warming to Alex MacArthur's Patrick McLaren. I end up like kind of like appreciating some things that do that character. But both of these are profoundly different takes on these characters. Yes. And I'm um, in Scott Plank's case, even though I don't necessarily I don't necessarily know that I'd say he's doing a terrible job, but I would say it feels like there's not a take on the character here at all. It feels like no. the, he, like he just doesn't get there. It is a textureless version of what Al Pacino eventually brings to the table. And even if you take away the just high end coke acting uh, that Pacino eventually brings to this, there just isn't much personality there. It is. In a weird way, it almost feels like Scott Plank is doing his best Al Pacino impersonation, which is not very good. And I'm guessing that, that somewhere in there, man had a very specific vision for how he wanted this character portrayed. And this is just what Scott Plank was capable of. But like he's doing a little bit of the voice and inflection that Pacino eventually kind of gets to. But there's just nothing there for anyone to really work with. Like the the joking reference I made to this uh, talking about it to someone the other night about this m- movie is that like. This whole production and this character in particular, it's Detective Homer Simpson and police cops. It is the over like the super slick, super cool handles all the crimes cop with like, you know, he's he's in this case, I guess, like him and his wife own like a nightclub. And so like that's their whole thing. And so like he's just a cool guy who solves crimes, but there's nothing actually cool about him. And there's nothing particularly interesting that is shown in this about him other than him being a very lightweight version of the typical man protagonist, a guy who is consumed by his work and whose relationships suffer because of it. No, it's it's really funny because um one of one of the the notes I have is like what is like when I first started, like he's like, you know, they get to the crimes, the uh the 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 armored car robbery scene, and he starts doing the hyper-efficient cop shit. Yeah. And he's like calling all the shots and he's like, you know, really kind of channeling like William Peterson and Manhunter. Totally. But then I keep looking at him and I'm like, you look like a discount Rob Estes from Silk Stockings. Like God. You're, you're 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 the precursor to Chris Lorenzo. And somehow it ends up at discount Ben Affleck impersonator. It's really bad. <laughs> it's stunning. Yeah. The degree like if you haven't seen the film, it is uncanny the degree to which this guy arrives at being mid-career Ben Affleck like 15 years before Ben Affleck's going to be a major thing. It freaks me out. Yeah, it's super off. And again, I think a lot of this is is necessitated by the fact that they had to cut a ton of what he had what man had originally written for his original screenplay to get this to fit in the TV format. But also Plank is just not good in this role, and I can kind of, for once, I'm almost siding with a TV network here and saying this is probably not the guy I would have hitched my wagon to, but at the same time, I almost wonder if at a certain point, man was just like, well, if I if I acquiesce to their demands, then I actually have to go forward with this TV series, so what if I didn't do that? What if I said, I'm planting my Scott Plank flag, and that this is the hill I'm going to die on? So that eventually I can do something else. I'm. I don't know that for a fact. I'm just being conspiratorial here. But that feels like at a certain he point might have he was just like spike it. 
at a certain point, he feels like, I wish I had not tried to turn this into a pilot, and I would like to torpedo this entire thing right now. Like, it really does, it felt, like, it feels a lot like, um... Harrison Ford do like you know like throwing the voice act over the voice dubbing for for Blade Runner in yeah. hopes that it won't like you know they, it'll just be so bad they won't use it and then it happens anyway but at yeah. least man got out of having to make this into a series yeah it ended up in TV movie land which is where you know lots of stuff just kind of went to die and you know the thing about the guy who plays McLaren Alex McArthur he is good when he is dealing with the like the people in his gang and like when he is sort of just kind of going through the like very hyper focused very intense crime guy sort of dialogue but anytime he has to talk to anyone else the whole thing just kind of falls apart the relationship he has with the, with Edie the the extremely normy woman that he decides that he's going to hook up with all of that stuff is tortured to the point of death like the and there's a scene which you know I think we're gonna have to talk about this here, the diner scene, which is you know generally speaking one of the most famous scenes anywhere in the the man oeuvre. Uh, you know I, I I'm sort of in agreement with everyone else on this podcast. I think the thief one's a little better, but the heat diner scene is a scene everyone points and it's like this is great cinema. This is the least great version of that scene you could have gotten. <laughs> these so two awkward. together, these two together are just. They are repelling one another. It's. We should just tackle it so you can Let's see just the do two it. side. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if these are going to be the exact clips we end up using, uh, but I'm going to link to uh, Kato. I'm, I'm going to drop in here uh, a an article that has both versions uh, embedded in it. So I would say. Let's start with the famous version. Actually, mm -hmm. like the let's start with the Pacino uh, De Niro scene uh, that that everyone knows uh, and it's sort of the definitive version of the scene. Uh, let's watch that. And then we will see the prototype version that they do for L.A. Takedown. Seven years in Folsom in the hole for three. McNeil before that. McNeil is tough as they say. You're looking to become a penologist? You're looking to go back? You know, I chased down some crews, guys just looking to fuck up, get busted back. That you? You must have worked some dipshit crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing thrill seeker liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best, trying to stop guys like me. So you never wanted a regular type life? The fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? Yeah. This regular type life, that your life? My life? No, my life. No, my life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her real father's this large type asshole. I got a wife with 
passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Guy told me one time, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. Now, if you're around me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then, if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant, huh? Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. Buy you a cup of coffee. Seven years in McNeil. Yeah. McNeil's no country club. You looking to become a penologist? You looking to go back? I chased down crews. The guys are just looking to go back. You must have worked some pretty bad off crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing thrill-seeker liquor store hold-ups with a born-to-lose tattoo on my chest? No. Right. And I... I am never going back. Don't take down scores. That's my job. I do what I do best. Take down scores. You do what you do best trying to stop guys like me. End the story. You know, whatever happened to a normal type life? You ever thought of that? Family breakfasts and barbecues? Kids on Sunday afternoons? That life? That's nice. Is that your life? At this moment in time, no. My life is more like a disaster area. I got a great woman I'm truly in love with, but I'm probably losing her because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. So right now I'm alone. Then where's all the good stuff? I don't know. What are you, a monk? No. I got a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I sell swimming pools. And live a life so there's nothing in it you can't walk away from in 10 seconds flat. Yeah. So what if you spot me around the corner? You gonna do what you're supposed to, just walk away? Not even say goodbye? That's a discipline. What you're left with is pretty empty. Yeah. So then you and me? 
We should both go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. So, the LA takedown one is so, like, what's astonishing is that, by and large, the lines are the same. Yes. Like, it's it's an amazing study because it's the same scene pretty much on the page. Yeah. One is a tour de force and the other is some a damn guys. squib. Yeah. And some guys. It's, it doesn't, I'm not even sure. It, I'm not even sure it reads as like one of like the hearts of the movie. Like he no. sort of like, Builds like this is sort of the hinge point in Heat. This this conversation uh, marks where the film begins to enter its final act. Uh, it's been building toward this in, in a lot of ways, and here it the entire thing just seems to happen randomly. And it feels they, they in the Heat scene, it's like uh, here's two guys who like s- sort of do last long last find someone who maybe understands uh, like where they're at in life. In the last season, I almost come away from the opposite of like they seem more like I feel more alienated yeah. after seeing that scene than I went into it. The the line read from uh f- from Alex MacArthur of the, you know, do I do you see me taking down cowboy scores with a born to lose chat tattoo against like you can almost feel him reading a cue card behind Scott Plank's head. Like there are lines in there that are unnatural sounding that are clearly just that's the way they are on the page and you are either an actor that is capable of you know, rolling those around in your tongue until they sound like conversation or not. And this actor is not. And then the problem with these two actors is that they don't know how to take hold of this dialogue at all. They are essentially beholden to it. They're forced to say these lines, but they don't know how to make them sound like a thing a person would say. And that is where it starts to fall apart. Scott Plank goes through the entire scene almost during during the headlights. It's like he, he he goes to he has an expression that he just clings to like a drowning man. Yeah, and just like reads the lines. Uh, while and MacArthur like, really doesn't blink during any of this. No, it's it's really fucking terrifying. Um, he doesn't blink in a lot of scenes. Yes. Yeah, that that seems to be his choice about like, okay, how do I get across that I'm like, and. I seem like an ordinary Joe, but also I'm a criminal sociopath. Yeah. I just won't blink. That's one way to go about it, I guess. But <laughs> it, it feels like it, it, it honestly, it feels like these two characters were like walking, like happened to be like, like really that, that Plank and, and, and MacArthur were like doing their laundry and Michael Mann walked into them and were like, Hey, let's go next door and film this scene real fast. And yeah. neither of them had the script like ready. They were like, dude, we've got 45 minutes on the dryer. Like we just put, you know, two bucks in, come on. And like, he's like, no, 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 it's because we'll do it real fast. And like, then they did like, they went next door and then just filmed it. See, it's, it's good that you are, are, are able to articulate this because again, Rob and I very much have this, like we have just watched Al Pacino and Robert De Niro do these lines, which is just again, just about as wide a gulf between, you know, acting levels as you can get. But even without that frame of context, you can tell that this scene just does not work at all. No, it, it it's completely like, it feels like, it feels like a student film monologue. Yes. You know, yes. like video project. Like the stuff you find all over YouTube, where it's yeah. like student videos who are recreating famous scenes. Yeah. And 
yeah, that's that's how this this comes across, and it is just a. I think when you when you, it's when you hear actors talking about like finding a character or finding a scene, like it can be hard to understand what that work is because we evaluate these things by the final pro- product in so many ways, and we don't do that work. But like, here's a great example of like you you know you know it when it you see it versus when it didn't happen when it right. didn't come together. This is really interesting to watch, like, because, like, you know, it is easy to kind of roll your eyes when actors say things like that. And also, like, when, like, you know, with photographers and set up, setting up shots and things like that. And we do kind of talk in these, you know, qualitative terms that, like, are hard to pin down and don't really, like, you know, a lot of times it does end up, like, kind of feeling like, well, you know it when you see it. But, like, this really does, this, like, L.A. Takedown as a work really gives you a lot to, like, you know, to, 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 to pull apart and say oh this is what we mean when the editing happens too quickly and like this is what we mean when like we're not moving through the scene with the camera and like you know like this is what we mean when actors have not you know embodied the character or inhabited the lines or like you know found the emotional core of like the moment and it's like all here just textbook just like laid out like, yeah. Well, look at look at what's look at all the failures here that we normally take for granted. And like I think it calls attention to the fact that this scene which is iconic and when I watched the heat scene I'm like man what a great script though. They had it easy. They were handed that script. No they weren't. Like I, I like here like seeing these actors struggle with this. I'm like there are you know there are weird lines in here. Yeah. There are There's there dialogue are things, there that is not natural. No. And like, but it comes across as so earned and like easygoing when De Niro and Pacino are doing it. Though I've always thought like De Niro's decisions are so much more closed off that he like he also plays the character still like keeping his shields up pretty high. And I think he maybe accommodates some of the unnaturalness of the language by being somebody who really like has the sense for a lot of the scene of I don't really want to be here. Like you need this conversation. I don't. Um, and I think that's a choice he makes that I think ends up like holding the scene together uh, in a lot of ways in terms of their rapport. But yeah, like it is so easy to look at these things and say like, Oh, you know, it was a, it was a good script versus a bad script. Like maybe these actors weren't, weren't given a lot to work with. And here's a great case of like this as a, this as a medium of discovery. Where yeah. like the the words are on the page, but it's going to take different editing, different shot selection, and different performance to carry the scene off. And in one version, it's a classic, and in the other, uh, again, you're back in like porn parody land. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because again, a lot of the lines that are in that iconic scene are there, but there are two decisions that man makes in Heat that I think actually do improve the scene a lot, just beyond the the scope of the actors. One, he eliminates the random chance meeting, which is, you know, what the script was originally predicated upon. So I understand why he would want to film it that way. But in the way they do it in Heat, it has a lot more drama behind it. It has much more tense moments. It's not two guys in a strip mall in L.A. deciding whether they're going to pull on one another before they go and sit down for coffee. I don't think even a much more like high budget version of that would have worked as well as what they ultimately went with in Heat. And the other thing is that he allowed more room for digression in the conversation. Like there are 
dialogues bits that don't appear in this that do eventually appear in the in the heat version and while they're a little weirder like they're just like there's the whole bit with al pacino talking about the dreams he has and mm-hmm. you know de niro talking about his dreams and stuff like it's strange it's the strangest parts of those conversation but it's also i think kind of vital to letting that conversation breathe because here even apart from the camera work it's so claustrophobic it's so rushed like it doesn't feel like these two people will want to talk to one another. It feels like they are trying to get through their lines so they can get on to the next shot. The discussion of the dreams also reminds me of I think one of the things that LA Takedown almost gets at, but I think Heat sort of understands from the start, which is like the experience of like modern loneliness. Right. Um and I think fundamentally like that is what Heat is about is like the way People, people are sort of atomized and alienated. Um, and it happens via, like, along a lot of different vectors. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of ways, Heat is a film about um, people find themselves sort of isolated uh, without people to talk to or uh, without people to, like, let know what, what they are facing. L.A. Takedown kind of gets there in places. It scratches think, like, at it. The MacArthur stuff is, uh, you know, the the stuff that McLaren goes through uh, points at it a bit more. But, yeah, I don't think it it's still too. It's still too hung up on being a crime procedural with a cool dude at the center of it. It very it is very much structured in a way that feels like there is supposed to be a next episode of the adventures of Hannah and the robbery homicide division. Yeah. And it can't ever fully embrace that stuff because McLaren is not going to be a recurring character. It can't find a way, you know, like he's not going to turn into the bad guy from crime story. You know, like he's he's the the pilot criminal. But at some point, they're just going to branch off and do other stuff. So it can't commit. It can't commit all the way to those themes. And then that extends to like they don't carry off the relationship between um, MacArthur and. Uh, and uh, sorry, McLaren, and is is it Edie? That Edie he, is her name, yes. Yeah. yeah. The weird thing is in Heat, I totally buy that, like, they sell me on the notion that she knows something is, like, badly awry with this guy or in that relationship, but, like, you can be so lonely and the experience of, like, having a connection with somebody is so novel that you are willing to overlook a ton of red flags uh, because it is still like better having this person in your life or you, or it is better feeling like you have this connection, um, which doesn't come easily. And they try to get there basically by having characters just say it in, in mm-hmm. this version, like in only takedown, Edie basically explains why she is like, because Mac- like McLaren gives off really bad vibes, uh, oh, in the so, like straight up psychopath shit. Yeah. It's like Edie run like his the the first interaction is a disaster. And then somehow we're supposed to believe that he works this back around and they end up having a relationship. But you never you never buy it. It never makes sense. Like why she would keep this guy around or be torn up that it it goes bad. And I think in heat they make that case. But I think that's because like in heat sort of loneliness, his and hers and everyone's is sort of woven throughout the film in a lot of ways. Whereas here, it fulfills a really instrumental purpose. Why is this relationship happening? Uh, Well, they're lonely. Yeah. Okay. 
that's pretty much it. And I, one thing I will just say briefly is that, and we'll get into this more when we get to heat, but as much as I have bagged on heat and its treatment of its women characters, they are so much more detailed in that movie than they are here. Here they are literally just like tossed off sketches of people. Like there is nothing to them. There's nothing to Edie. There's nothing to Hannah's wife. They are just kind of there to react to stuff. And as much as he doesn't get all the way there with it in heat, in terms of like making them into fully featured characters, there's a lot of improvement between this and that. It was so weird watching like kind of like the, the backstepping from like, manhunter to this yeah because i kept like i'm like okay manhunter is you know that was about two like you know lonely like you know troubled people like you know kind of finding each other and it turns out one of them is you know a serial killer and the other one is like you know just this kind of like like lonely blind woman um and then this one is just like we get this sad graphic artist (laughs) deal and like yes and then mclaren is just like ends up being more of like a serial killer than the fucking serial killer yeah, that dude just murders people at the drop of a hat. But it also, like, he like you look at him and you just, like, he is the guy that, like, when you go in, like, public and you see him and you're like, that dude's a serial killer. So, like, an important distinction between the portrayals here is that De Niro is equally a dude who will just murk people at the drop of a hat. But the philosophy of the, you know, don't have anything in your life that you wouldn't walk out on in 30 seconds or less if you spot the heat around the corner, like, that whole thing is so much more emphasized in the movie and there's so much more about like his time in prison and all that. And just like what shaped him into that. And there's none of that here. Even when he touches a little bit on some of the same lines, he doesn't deliver it with the same sort of like rehearsed kind of like, Hey, I have thought about this deeply. This is why this is my philosophy. This is why I am this way. It really just feels like when he says that's the discipline like, he doesn't even believe it fully. He's just trying to, like, justify it. No, and it's really funny because I had forgotten that his character was supposed to have done time until you mentioned it just now. And I was like, yeah. you know, I was like, it, did, it just that detail did not even, like, track for me. It doesn't register at all. No. Well, and I think this is the other one major difference, even though only, like, six years, like, film uh, separate these these two projects, but, like, in some ways, like Heat is in a lot of ways a story about like middle age and yeah. or the the beginning of it, uh, where like it's 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 clear that like things are not going to work out, uh, that like a lot of things that were easier going to become hard, or that like the future is a place of limited possibility now. Um, that we get to that that theme that was in Thief, right? Like the running out of time. Uh, yeah. like awareness that hits you uh, at some point uh, between like the end of youth and like the real start of middle age um, here LA takedown these are really young guys yeah 30 so is, what, is how old Van Hanna is supposed to be in this right and so when we're like oh yeah you know McLaren he's done he's done hard time when yeah <laughs> like, like in juvenile hall yeah, and like you can start it, you can start it like, but I will say the difference is also that like, I think MacArthur plays McLaren as a guy who's still like maybe coasting on that last gust of feeling immortal, uh, whereas like at no point it's 
at no point do either Pacino or De Niro manifest that like there's any sort of illusion left for them. Yeah. Um, whereas like McLaren feels that character who really does think like I am so hot shit that I can pull all of this off. And there's sort of weightlessness to yeah. a lot of the decisions he makes that I think is a choice. Again, like he's sort of almost like, you know, tossing a coin into the air to decide like what, you know, what he's going to do. Uh, that is, that's how he tends to play this character. Um, and I think it's, it, it's, it's a choice, but it does make it less compelling. This, this notion that like, you know, I am never going back, you know, I mean, you barely been in clearly yeah. <laughs> in this story. And there's like all this stuff in there about how like, you know, they're this hot shit crew and, you know, they haven't been cut into yet. They say that line like five times in that in about a 15 minute span. But, you know, the only one who looks like he's actually been doing this a while is the guy who plays Cerrito, Vincent Guastafero, who eventually goes on to be played by Tom Sizemore. And look, I'm no I'm not going to stand here and defend, you know, Tom Sizemore as a person or whatever. But God, does Tom Sizemore just act circles around this guy? And it's like there's just n like he's the only one that feels like he has done crimes before and everyone else just kind of feels like these young actors who are supposed to play hard, but they just don't have the chops for it. And so everything about this crew and the way they work and the way they operate and how they're so fucking, you know, over the top and like just good at what they do, it all feels extremely forced in a way that that he never does. Yeah, and and part of it is also like because these characters are almost rendered as extras, almost. Yeah. Uh, Sarita is the only one that really stands out in my in my mind uh, because he's the one that's introduced. You know, in Heat, ultimately the 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 crew of thieves and the robbery homicide cops are presented as like mirror societies, almost that they both like know each other's families, that they have like these sorts of like, um, you know. They're little communities to themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas, like, that's that's all sort of being carried by uh, Cerrito and and his family uh, in the story, and that's kind of the only the only like fleshing out we're going to get uh, of of sort of McLaren's crew. But I will say, like, there are still some things that are pretty strong. I think um, in L.A. Takedown. God, who is who is the guy who brings McLaren the info about the about Hannah? Oh, um, not Willie Nelson, but, you know, no. like, but a guy channeling a Willie Nelson. <laughs> so I only know this actor because he's the guy that gets thrown onto the fryer and at the beginning of Terminator 2. No, no. Yes. It's the biker wow. guy who gets thrown onto the to, to the to the fryer uh, and who eventually takes the motorcycle from incredible it's a face i will always recognize well he does it's good work distinctive here. yeah but he he sort of is the bearer here of again like a lot is left for him in this film where it's like he needs to sort of be the person to be like hey in case the audience doesn't know it is now incredibly self-destructive to continue trying to push this heist like yes the game is the game is up and that character obviously gets more, you know, showtime in Heat. And he's only in like a couple of scenes here, one of them on the phone. But uh, the thing I was struck by watching this is that uh, they really should have swapped Xander Berkeley and this guy's roles. Like this guy should have been yeah. Wayne Grow 
and the other and Xander Berkeley probably should have played uh, Nate because boy howdy, there is some gravity to this guy who plays Nate, and there is none in what Xander Berkeley does. Look, Xander Berkeley is here to remind you that the 90s are coming up and full motion video games are happening. And that's fine. I don't have anything against Xander Berkeley as no. an actor. In fact, I like him in most things I've seen. <laughs> a good workaday character actor. But this version of Wayne Grow is so off from, and, and I'm trying not to just directly compare, but it just doesn't feel like there's anything there. He's supposed to be a guy who thinks he's hot shit and is also really dangerous, but all you get out of him is, is this kind of deluded guy who also is a serial murderer, who also apparently orchestrates this revenge plot. And it's just none of it makes any goddamn sense. <laughs> no, he's I mean, I kept I was like, why? Why is this a Tex Murphy, you know, full motion video character? Yeah. Like, oh, so weird. Right down to the fact that he like, how are you going to characterize his emotional state in this? Uh, Xander, we need you to get sweatier. Um, for this. Could you could we you put be, him under a heat lamp for a while? Could you play this a little sweatier? Could like we need you soaking, man. Yeah, uh, I like and also just it's it's so slapdash that like to get across the idea that he's also like he's turned into a serial killer. They have them catch a like murdered sex work worker case out like on the street somewhere. And then we cut to he is now on to his next victim. He's also like, you know, doing this in rapid fire succession. And in Heat, this is inverted. It, yeah. There's like a story of like this guy is escalating into like a at like a spiral uh, and turning into uh, we didn't realize we were just a fuck up. But now he's just an outright monster. And here it like takes a long moment to realize like, oh, uh, Xander Berkeley is doing all of this <laughs> yeah. uh, because Again, is is only out of real, order. Yeah, and his only real note is just to like sort of sit there in the corner of a motel room, uh, you know, basically trying to impress uh, the woman he's just slept with. What like what hot shit he is while she's like deeply bored and ignoring him, and he you know he he kills her. Um, but it just doesn't work, and it, no. it, it does like it makes you realize Kevin Gage did tremendous work as yes. Wayne Grow. Like that is a I don't think that's an easy character to pull off. No. Um, because he does have to be scary and also insecure and pathetic. And those things come through in everything he does. Um, where Xander Berkeley is just horribly mis like nothing so about wrong. it works. No, it's so wrong. And he he has no hold of the character, but there doesn't seem like there's much character for him to hold on to there anyway. It's just it feels like wrong actor, wrong writing, wrong everything for that part, especially the bit where they they have to. So in Heat, obviously, Wingro has there's a much larger, complicated plot that leads to him getting his revenge, whereas here he is literally just orchestrating all the shit in the background because he's pissed. And it like there's no more illustrative part for me other than the two principles of actors and paroles kind of being in the wrong places than there is Carrie uh, Hiroyuki uh, Tagawa's uh, <laughs> Hugh Benny in this, who is eventually played by Henry Rollins in the next film. And I love, I love Carrie. He's a great actor. He looks like he knows he is above the bullshit that he has been saddled with in this movie. And he's right. And believe me when I say that, I, like nothing about him being in this makes any goddamn sense. He feels like too big an actor for that role in this this whole production. Well, it's so funny because like I'm sitting there watching it and like you know, it's just like, dude, you felt more like 
peace and comfortable in the role of Shang Tsung yeah. in the Mortal Kombat movie than you do here. And it looks like, like he knows this is nothing. Yeah, like it's it's like it was such it's such a weird decision, and it's like you know I'm like dude, you got a paycheck, good for you, but also why are you here? Yeah. Well, and, and then he has nothing to do. Nothing. He gets pissed off when they break into his apartment and they break his TV. That's it. <laughs> well, and and because it's from a cut side plot where there's supposed to be this like world of criminals. Yeah, that like they are other elements. Yeah. Yeah, and here it's like, how do we how do we imply that there's like this world of criminals? We'll have this guy stand in for Koreatown gangsters, um, and that's gonna be like that's our allusion to like ah the underworld of L.A. Yeah, um, and that's and and that's gonna basically be be the ball game. Um, like, it's so funny because it doesn't even feel like part of the script is missing. It doesn't feel like oh this is something that would have gotten explored in further episodes of the show down the line. It just feels like when you like playing through like Skyrim and then just not like like seeing the prompts and just ignoring them and just mainlining the critical path and then stopping the game and being like I did. Yeah, like there was like, probably yeah. a whole backstory there, but you just oh, don't have time. You just for didn't it. click on it, nah. Yeah, yeah, and like I mean, and speaking of like fi- like as slipshot as it is as it is handled, the way the leak goes is incredibly involved, more so than in <laughs> Heat. Yeah, so to the point where it's actually kind of ridiculous. It's it's this fucking mousetrap contra like contraption <laughs> of how Wayne Grow ends up causing the the heist to go bad it's that he ends up hooking up with this gangster in LA who has a hookup with an insurance detective who has a connection his firm handles the bank's insurance and so Wayne Grow with this gangster like extorts one of McLaren's crew into selling them out on the day of the heist and then files the tip to this insurance detective. We will meet for one scene and like better pay close attention to why they're talking to this guy because like you blink and you'll miss it. And he is the one who called in the tip late uh, and wanted to make sure that he was getting like maximum award money for this deal um, and so that is the mechanism by which all of this unfolded. And it's like, there's like three steps in it. And this is not a movie that has space to like lay out these kinds of connections. This no. is not a three, this is not a three degrees of separation movie. Like you can tell that Michael Mann was not going to get through this without getting at least one scene of his lead police detective screaming at a guy in a police station. Like that needed to happen. And that is where this, uh, that is where this insurance agent scene happens. But like none of this stuff works, like none of it plays. It's like you said, it's a blink. If you're not paying rapt attention to what is being said very quickly, you do not understand all the me- the, the mechanisms that get you to this place. And again, it's just not a particularly engaging revenge plot. Like none of it really lands and part of it is because Wayne it just doesn't feel like a you're kind of stunned that he's back <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, like, oh like that guy it's so funny I just left I thinking about this and you know and like it just did make me kind of like low-key nostalgic for the era when we did have the tv movie that the the like epic yes. like tv mm-hmm. event 
Yes. Where it was like, we got the 90 minute like pilot or movie or whatever, and we're going to stretch it out between like the three hours between like the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. And it's going to fucking rule. And it's just going to be loaded with commercials. And like breaking this movie up in my head with commercial breaks and extending it out. What the fuck? Yeah. How did anyone think that that was going to work? And so the thing is, he did redo some of the editing to make it a TV movie because originally it was supposed to be a pilot and, you know, it was going to be, you know, multi-episode thing. I imagine there was probably a pretty split, neat split in the middle of this thing that was going to be the two-parter. Right. But I don't know what exactly he reworked (laughs) because a lot of it still feels very much like here is your, we're setting this up for the season of television that will follow. You know, I really like, you know, like watching DVDs for old shows that haven't been like edited for like, you know, watching them on a DVD. Right. And so you get like the the like the shot before you go into the commercial. And then when you come back and it's like the same the shot. Same but shot where, yes. But it is like maybe a slightly different angle or something like that. And then like thinking about this and I'm just like, I almost need that just to like reify like, you know, what's going to happen. And I wonder like, I'm like, did this have that or did we just come back from commercial and just completely disorient the audience? We need uh, also it's making me realize like we need the equivalent of like CGW museum, but for like tons of shit, because (laughs) I'm so curious because part of the TV movie thing, like you promote that shit through TV guide. There'd be like a little onset feature. You're talking to like, I am so curious, like in what was this sort of, you know, just sort of kicked out out the van door on the highway and like sent rolling down the hill. Or was this like an event? Like, were they were they pushing it as like. You know, hey, you're not going to want to miss this Friday night extravaganza. Uh, the action is the juice, people. You'll find out what that means. Yeah, it's it's weird. So, like, this thing had a really interesting release. Uh, it was a Sunday night movie, by the way. Is oh, released. Wow. Yeah. yeah, big deal. Uh, but after that, it was basically forgotten about. Like, it got a VHS release in some European territories. The DVD, which is what we all ended up watching, was was a UK DVD that I happened to find for, like, 10 bucks somewhere. Uh, I think that is, to date, the only vaguely high-def release of this thing it ever got. I, I know, because um, I asked my like my dad and my uncle, because they're the, the two, like, big Michael Mann fans. I know, like, like did you guys, did you familiar with it? And they were just like... My dad didn't remember it at all. My uncle was just like, why are you watching that? Just watch Heat. I mean, that's not an unfair thing to say. <laughs> like, that was, that was, and I was like, it was like, so do you remember? He's like, he's like, I remember it being bad. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, there are, okay. So there are a couple of things about this that at least for what the era and especially the television era was capable of producing, I do feel like there was something there. And one of the things that I think it does have, again, nowhere, you can't compare this to Heat because that is just unfair, but the big bank heist shootout that happens, uh, you know, which is one of the most iconic scenes in Heat, it is not good here, but there are some shots and there are a couple of bits that feel ambitious for what you could normally get on television at this era. One, some some of it is just the weaponry they're using. They are using some high-grade fucking, like, military rifles. The cops are. And then, you know, like, it's like Daniel Baldwin, who is in this, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned that part. Uh, is just, like, he's using some kind of, like, extremely high-grade military rifle, uh, which I don't remember ever seeing in a TV show before. And there's a shot toward the end of it 
where uh, Hannah is chasing McLaren through a building. And there is like it is clearly like, you know, the camera is pulling back as the, the, the characters are running at the camera and there's chaos yes. everywhere. And apart from the part where Scott Plank looks like he's going to accidentally shoot someone in the face because he does not know how to hold this rifle. Uh, <laughs> it is hectic in a way that in frantic in a way that I don't feel like a lot of television generally got to be in its action sequences. That said, the second you hold this thing up to the light of what heat does it feels like someone just like drew crayon on some paper. It is pretty fucking bad. Uh, there are, but then there's little touches too. Like, like man can't help himself. Like, um, Cerrito has, um, the like magazines MP5, taped together yeah. on his MP5 for fast, uh, reloads. Uh, so we can eject it, flip it around, uh, you know, put it, put it in the other magazine. Um, it's very funny because also for the most part, these actors just wildly spraying. Oh yeah. Uh, and Scott like, Blank is doing some incredible poses during this, like some just absolute like eighties action movie, like upstairs college, learning how to shoot guns type shit, like real bad. Well, and throughout the movie, everything is the like. It largely feels like a movie where they're, for the most part, playing canned gunshot sound effects. Yes. Yes. Um, Except for this. Yeah. Uh, but like nothing quite, nothing quite sounds right. Um, I do think, but it is also interesting because it's a smaller scale thing. I did kind of appreciate the incongruity of the fact that like where the shootout is happening, you run a couple blocks in any direction, you're back on residential streets. Yeah. And so I do kind of love that the the denouement of this because like the in the in heat it's the entire thing just can't escape a downtown feel uh, downtown setting, but here uh, the denouement comes from Cerrito basically running down a sidewalk in a suburb, uh, being pursued by like you know the entire robbery homicide uh, division, the ones that haven't died already. Yes, yeah, and it's 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 totally inco- incongruous, but very. In some ways, again, like uh, drives home sort of the patheticness of his plight, which is yeah. like you are now you are, you are now based. You are basically like trying to escape up someone's driveway. Yeah. Uh, to, to lose the cops. And, uh, you know, as in the previous, uh, you know, as in heat, uh, you know, he takes a kid hostage and that's why they got to take him out. Um, I do love also, again, Scott Plain's carrying a rifle, right? Yes, he, uh, yeah. he takes the rifle from Daniel Baldwin after, by the way, if you watch this. Watch the part where Daniel Baldwin goes down. It is one of the greatest, like, I'm not committing to hitting the pavement, like, actor moves you've ever seen. He's just sort of like, uh, I'm dead, and just kind of, like, kind of falls, but, like, it's, Lowers it's pretty himself bad. against the car. And, yeah, like, it doesn't yeah. look good. Uh, there's some really bad editing in this also. There's a few, like, very noticeable jump edits. But, yes, he grabs Daniel Baldwin's rifle, this super gun. But then, for this for this takedown... He he dumps the rifle and is like, I had to do this with pistol. Yeah. And it just it's just kind of weird. It's like, when isn't one of these like a precision? I don't know. Yeah. Sure. Like, wouldn't the it's, sight on the more, other one actually be better? Yeah. Well, you know, whatever. It's uh, you, you look angry at those. You pull the pistol. You're not fucking around and, and yeah. get this guy. Um, But. He, you mentioned, though, that like. That the women in this film are extremely brushed over uh, paper thin shall we say so 
I mostly agree with that, with the exception I can't quite make out. So Edie's a nothing character. That's that's yeah. unfortunate. There's there's no salvaging that. But uh Hannah's wife Lillian. It is presented as so in Heat, ultimately, the verdict on this is like the entire relationship is unsalvageable from the start. We yeah. get versions of this that are basically just Pacino ranting at his wife rather than like them exchanging conversations. There's lines that uh, Lillian gets in L.A. Takedown that are given to Hannah uh, where she like where she talk where she confronts him. So they end up repeating a beat from from Crime Story. And. Uh, if I can dig it up, I might. I might ask Kato to insert the scene from from Crime Story, uh, where things sort of come to a come to a head between Dennis Farina's character uh, and his wife. But th- this idea that um, one of the things that the the cop's wife can't take is the fact that, uh, like, her role is to basically comfort and care for a guy who is repeatedly traumatized by his profession. And the great thing that he's getting out of the marriage is that he gets enough emotional uh, like support to continue working this job that's like destroying him and killing right. him. Mm-hmm. And Lillian makes that argument here. And, and the weird thing is like by the time like in in heat, I would say his wife is almost a villain. Uh, by by the end of it, like you don't understand how she gets not, there. Not by the end. I think in the end they try to do the redemptive bit, which it doesn't completely land. But like, that, no comeback from fucking Xander Berkeley. Yeah, uh, the thing, the thing I will agree with is that I think that they make the wife here a much more sympathetic character. They make her much more of like a, a person who seems like she is suffering as a result of this, and not someone who is vindictive about and this. aware of the dynamics. Yeah. Which I think is a crucial difference where like, because here's the thing that interests me here. Both L.A. Takedown, I think, ends up being a study or being a little more interested in like relationship dynamics than he, which is, I think, more explicitly about like loneliness and like the breakdowns of relationships. But because in this in this film, one thing that Hannah and McLaren both say in their defense when they are confronted by their partners they both make this argument. They're like, did I ever lie to you? Mm -hmm. And it's this really, um, (laughs) it's a very lawyerly approach to like having these arguments, right? Like in, in McLaren's case, it's obviously like complete sin of omission. Uh, he didn't lie, but obviously he left out huge pieces of information. Yeah. But, but Hannah's a guy who's kind of chosen to be a shitty husband and the way he consoles himself is like, Hey, I told you what you were signing up for at the start. I told you you'd have to share me with the worst, the worst, uh, you know, people uh, in the city with the worst humanity has to offer. Hannah makes the same argument in, uh, you know, Heat as well, but in L.A. Takedown, it comes across much more as he thinks by having made that declaration, he's good. That like this is right. now like the f- the foundations of this, this relationship are secure. Because she opted in, and therefore I don't have to do anything beyond this uh, to be like a partner. Yeah, sorry, you didn't read the Apple user agreement. You agreed to this, <laughs> so you're officially legally bound to this. 
And I think the thing that I do appreciate that Ellie Takedown gives Lillian is this place of where she gets to lay out. I did understand this. Here is what I understood. And here's the role I am fulfilling. But here's where you are not keeping up your end. Here is where like you have to be part of this relationship too. And that gets, that's actually going to kind of be scrubbed out by the time we get to heat. Like I like that, that, Study of the relationship is going to fall by the wayside and things are not going to be salvageable there. Um, and here, like, you know, one of the things that sort of brings them back together is that when it all goes bad and they've got the scene in the hospital where it's like two of his friends are dying in the hospital. They've been wounded so badly that neither is going to make it out. Um, she does the does the thing and she she shows up for the extended family of cops. But I think, I think the script tries to do right by Lillian. Um, and I think in these moments it does, I think where it fails her is there's so much of like, she's a cool eighties accessory to Hannah. Like it's yeah. the way LA takedown gets hung up on the idea of cool. It's like, maybe it's still going for a Sonny Crockett thing. I don't know what it is, but like, I, I do think it's that. I think I think it is a little bit of of the hangover from, you know, both Miami Vice and Crime Story, the way they sort of like tried to portray their lead characters' marriages. And it's also like you talk about how it didn't really find that stuff didn't find its way in the heat. It kind of has to here because the premise is that there will be more of this relationship over mm. time. You will see this character again. Even if they eventually decide to excise her at some point, the way they do in Miami Vice and Crockett's wife you still have to get at least a little bit more of that story. So you can't treat her as a completely ancillary thing to what's going on. Even though LA takedown never really finds a way to make that character super interesting. They have to at least keep her in the mix because presumably you're going to see Vincent Hannon again, which means you're probably going to see his wife again. It's like, it's really interesting because like they even like introducing her and like kind of, you know, like this, this, you know, Herb, like it's like a managing this like nightclub sort of deal where, you know. Uh, but they are playing the worst music you've ever heard in right, your life. Oh, right. my God. Um, But like, yeah, that 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 cover of um, Sympathy for the Devil is just something Rock. incredible to experience. Um, But like, it's almost like they're like, they like you could see like this, like where they like, like someone was like, oh, yeah, we'll set her up and like, you know. Like every week we can have a different band in the background, you know, yes. and like, yes. it's just like, it's like, you know, like you like, it's like into the, the vision of like the, the, the club from like Buffy the Vampire Slayer almost, but just like, it's like, oh, you're going to like, you, you almost set this up so that you could have this for the network executives to be like, oh, hey, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, it's like then, you can hear the pitch meeting where they're like, it's like Miami Vice. We're going to have big music. We're going to have the most popular artists and they're all they're actually going to perform in the background. It's going to be awesome. Instead, we get Billy Idol's L.A. Woman cover twice. Oh, oh. <laughs> fucking you know, hell. I, I thought it was bad when Scorsese used shipping up to Boston like five times in The Departed. <laughs> this was worse. This is worse. Well, and the worst thing is, it's like, you know, I actually kind of like the Charmed Life album. The L.A. woman is really bad, especially because the L.A. woman does, like, decide to, like, keep, like, the six-minute-long fucking guitar solo. L.A. woman by itself is not a great song. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
I remember like, when it's, I first watching this, and like I like I started hearing it. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's the that's the Billy Idol that LA voice. woman. And like <laughs> then we get to the mon like the city montage, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me, Michael? Man, I will end you. We could it, the the thing we lost by this not becoming a TV series is that later on we could have gotten an appearance of Billy Idol's cyberpunk phase oh, later man. into LA Takedown the series. Tragedy. Rob is just shaking his head, and I understand why. Why didn't we get cyberpunk era Billy Idol in more like shows? Like, why is like Billy Idol not in like Forever Night? I don't know. Why wasn't he it's, in Highlander? We got Joan Jett in Highlander. We didn't know what we had. That's why. <laughs> Tragedy. Just imagining Bill Collins just being shoehorned into oh, yeah. LA Takedown, the TV <laughs> series. Hey, Phil, just uh, jamming with the band tonight? Yeah, working on some new stuff. Yep. I'm playing, yeah, I'm playing in your shitty 60-person <laughs> club tonight for some reason. <laughs> well, and so, but and this is this is the thing, like, okay, also, here's a weird detail, but again, it, it speaks to the, the, the porn parody vibe of this. Okay, so I think, I think it's actually effective set decoration, that they are meant to be like, this is a new couple, they've, like, started a new chapter in their lives, and their house is, like, half-furnished, their bed is on the floor, their TV in their bedroom is just sitting on the floor, Next to the mattress, uh, they've just sort of put it there as the best view. But at the same time, it's like this is an unfurnished rental in L.A. Oh, yeah. And so at any moment, you're like, OK, so porn's going to happen here in a minute, right? Yep. Um, Dude, the police station looks like a place porn <laughs> happens. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. But the the thing is, at the same time, like we're supposed to be like, wow, like. Look at this guy in his modern apartment and like his his, his, his big wife. windows around the bed and he's all splayed out because he's a cool guy. And then he goes and he has sex in the shower because that's what the, cool guys do. The little television with the test pattern on it next to the yes. bed. What? Look, well, they went I mean, to bed watching, uh, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt and then uh, they fell asleep <laughs> and just the TV, you know, the, the station hadn't come back on yet. But like the like at, like, 930. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, they do. that's that station doesn't have news. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, they're not gonna, they're gonna, they're not gonna start until like old sitcom reruns at like eleven. Uh. But the but it feels like the, cons- the concept for her is that she's a modern career because he explores this a little bit. Miami Vice, like one of Crockett's serious love interests, uh, is like. I forget what she, I forget, like, she's an artist, I think. Or like I think she owns one. an art gallery. Either way, yeah, like, yeah. Tub shows up and is like, you know, you're too good. Like, you're just slumming it with this guy because he's a piece of shit and I'm his best friend and I'm telling you he's a piece of shit and this is not going to work. Uh, they're best friends. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But uh, here it's like the concept is a little, is there, he's going back to this well of like, basically she is. Rick from Casablanca, I think we get the <laughs> scenes of her balancing her books and running the club, and but then also patrons being sexually harassed by this dude who at first you're like, is that an employee? But I thought he was no. the bouncer at first, but apparently not. Yeah, it's not. But then he's got to he's got to straighten it out. Uh, well, and, and actually, that's another thing. This uh, that seems to be a thread running through here is. Man doesn't seem to lose sight of the fact that, like, 
tough guy archetype shit in movies is horrific when mm-hmm. like normal people experience it and observe it firsthand. <laughs> and so we get the scene of like this guy getting fresh and like, as if that's not enough, he's like, Hey man, what do you expect? Your wife's a nice piece. And Vincent flips out and like beats the shit out of the dude uh, in the, in the bar. And rather than being like, yeah, that's my man taking care of business. She is quite justifiably like, what, what in are the you doing? fuck is happening? And I do appreciate that in man in man movies, this is always kind of a marker of like, oh yeah, uh, our heroes are like wildly maladapted. Yeah, uh, like this is not, there's nothing admirable here. These guys are completely unable. Like they're impersonating functional human interactions uh, a lot of the time. But when the chips are down, you're going to see uh, some completely out of pocket behavior. The problem here, though, is that Scott Plank is uniformly unconvincing as a person capable of any meaningful violence, let alone the kind necessary to portray this scene. I am not a big proponent of the idea that, you know, a smaller person cannot beat a bigger person. I have seen early UFC. I know how that goes. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time. Scott Plank looks like a dude who would go flying off into the wind if you blew on him too strong. And this guy, this guy is built like a mid-level WCW wrestler from 1998. Like there is no. He is all Jack Torso. It's terrible. There is no comparison. But Scott Plank absolutely is the guy who would flip out in the club and try and pick a fight with a dude who would absolutely <laughs> just obliterate him. But then once he was started getting obliterated, he'd be like, hey, come on, don't hit me. What? I'm the birthday boy. I'm just a little guy. Leave me alone. <laughs> no, then he would take it out on his wife. Yes. Fair. <laughs> let's, let's be real here. This You're is not wrong. Scott Plank is in this movie. So they do they do book him better, I suppose, for the denouement in yes, which he, he found a territory they could book him better in. it's it's bad it's the lax sheraton or something it's not great (laughs) no uh so in the real movie (laughs) (laughs) actually referred to it yes (laughs) the entire thing is repaid off with uh collie tracking down wayne grow and taking care of that last piece of business but it also brings him into the crosshairs of robbery homicide here the entire thing does have this pathetic air of anticlimax. Oh, my God. McLaren gets word of where Wayne Grow is holed up. And because of the way this entire plot went down, again, like, remember that insurance agent we we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Whole thing. Like, it ends up being the way that Hannah reverse engineers what's been going on and ends up, like, realizing that Wayne Grow is perfect bait. But, uh, McLaren goes to settle up with Wayne Grow, and before he can even confront him, Hannah shows up. <laughs> and instead of instead of a cat and mouse game through the runways of LAX, we get two guys kitty corner in a hallway in a hotel, <laughs> sort of yelling at each other <laughs> before Xander Berkeley. Just does some basic geometry, walks around a corner with a shotgun, and just blasts our, one of our heroes through a door and cuts him in half. They jobbed him out. They jobbed out McLaren so hard at the end there. Like, dude, oh, God, why did I care about you at all? You just got smoked. 
God, the 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 scene there is so funny because there's like a beat before McCl- before they actually have like it's like they don't cut it tight enough, and like there's a little bit of like where they like kind of just rolled a little extra footage, and McLaren has this like look like he's got this look on his face like he doesn't know what's happening. He does like, and it's like he's like there's like this like sadness and confusion. It's like a like a like a five year old who's just been yelled at for eating a candy bar because his parents are going through a divorce, and that is a look on his face. And then it is we, a dog who has just eaten a newspaper right, and, and is then, being scolded. And then we get the the, the shot through the door. Oh my god! And then there's like another beat as he is pulled back, you know, by a wire like against the wall, and we see the squibs go up, and it's. Poorly constructed. <laughs> it's they got one shot at it and they said, "All right, on to the next." I didn't think I mean, like it makes the shootout at the end of Manhunter. Oh, look like the shootout in Heat. Really, yeah, it's like it, does. It's, it is. It is some of the worst editing around an action sequence I've ever seen. Well, and this is and this is the weird thing. Like this is post Crime Story and Miami Vice and like. Michael Mann is pretty deep in his career at this point and has been yeah. around a lot of these sets and like knows how to work this stuff. And like this, this is this what is 19 like, days is, of production gets you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not his best work. And then, so we got to deal with Wayne Grow, who we know has been killing women around LA. Yes. I'm not sure anyone else knows that. They haven't, yeah, like there's no indicating moments where they're like, oh, this is the guy who did this. It's not at all that. It's it's very much like, we know he's been doing this, but like they're here to get Wayne Grow because they know he's the one who sold them out. And also he was involved in these other murders, but not the 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 sex worker murders. It was like the the two, the, the guy who right, was the, in McLaren's yeah. crew and his wife. And so how do we wrap that up? We're just gonna have this guy motor mouth in a cutscene too long. Yep. Um. Until he gets QTE'd through the plate glass. Like, yeah. Through the, no, through the window. Hannah chooses the renegade option. Uh. <laughs> and again, I I think this is maybe the one choice in this entire thing that I will say is braver than anything in Heat. He straight up savat kicks that dude through a twenty story window. <laughs> <laughs> And it's I cannot amazing. And by the, I just so the thing is, um, Scott Plank throughout this movie is wearing a wardrobe that only exists between the fall of 1988 and like the release of Steve Martin's L.A. Story. Yeah, yeah, 90, yeah. 1991. <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> the high the high pleated pants. Uh, with generous leg room, it's not quite MC Hammer, but like it's like it feels like it yeah. in some ways. And yeah, him, he's like, getting dinner at Letio after this, you know, he's part yep. of the new cruelty. Uh, yeah, and so having him <clears throat> unload that kick to his Xander Berkeley, who's like, "What do you mean? I got away with it." Uh, it's it's perfect. It's magical, and it is made more magical by the fact that it is preceded by a line that I'm pretty sure they needed another take on because it seems like he catches himself halfway through the line saying it wrong, which is that you only got two choices, one choice, and it's like you know you either put your your head on the bars, you put your head on the toilet, and it's like wait wait is it is it two choices? Is it one choice? What are you actually saying here? That's his I big forget. cool guy yeah. line before he fucking karate kicks that guy. 
I forgot how incoherent that line was, but you're right. It's so it's, bad. It's so bad. And so the guy goes plummeting out the window and Hannah's work is done. And he, his wife has shown up to the scene of the, of the showdown mm-hmm. uh, to greet him uh, when he comes out. And they sort of walk away arm in arm uh, at the end of the film, turning it into a beautiful story of remarriage. Yes. Uh, and recommitment. That was actually uh, Xander Berkeley was the centerpiece of their recommitment dinner. <laughs> um, and, you know, now they're going to be now it's going to work. Um, you know, he's going to be a supportive husband. She's going to run her club. It's. It's something, man. It is. And so much like. So much is going to come in with heat. With. The fact that like the real exploration of like dysfunctional marriage is going to come through Val Kilmer's character. Yes. Um, that like, and the cost of broken marriage is going to come through rather than being about Hannah and his wife. It's going to be about the fact that like, he has also obligated himself to be there for a teenage daughter. Um, and that becomes a stake, uh, one of the stakes of this drama, but like there's, there's so much in heat that like ends up sort of distributing the, the thematic load and also building up just like the necessary structure for this plot. And I think the last, maybe this is the last thing I'd sort of mention is part of this, the weirdness of this, the fact that like, this is not like man's LA period has not truly begun. No, like he, he doesn't have Chicago people. He doesn't have like he's not working with any of like his regulars and it feels like by the time he comes to heat and then certainly by the time of collateral. He has a feel for like what he thinks of L.A., both as like a metaphor, as a location and as like a visual centerpiece. And here either doesn't or he only has access to the corner LA strip mall as his primary shooting location. And so like, there is no sense of placeness to this. Well, it's, it's a couple of things. I mean, so originally this was written, I think as another Chicago story, as were many other, you know, things written by Michael Mann. He made the decision to move it to the LA robbery homicide division because he just thought their like that police unit in particular made more sense for the story that he was telling. As far as like the L.A. aspect of it, yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I guess, sort of the establishing shot that says, hey, by the way, I'm in L.A. now. But there isn't much there that really feels, I mean, outside of like the strip malls, like it just doesn't have like that kind of, it doesn't have what we know Michael Mann will do with the city of L.A., especially in night shots, uh, you know, in collateral and heat uh, in, in, in going forward. And it's never like there's no part of L.A. takedown that evidences this more than the big moment where Hannah is like, you know what they're looking at? They're looking at us, the LAPD, because in heat, that is one of the greatest shots in that movie. It is this incredible, you know, sort of expansive feeling shot of like the the L.A. docks, like the San Pedro docks. You know, it is like this incredible, massive open environment. And you can kind of see, and he has all this room to play around with the cinematography there. Here, they are apparently in the courtyard of a high school. And it is just like, 
There's no sense. I was sense. trying to figure out what that architecture was. I, was I don't saying, know what it is exactly, nuts. but that's what it feels like. I was like, this is like a parking deck in Phoenix. Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> it is a nothing shot in a nothing place that has no feel to it whatsoever. And, it, and, you know, obviously there's also the part where Scott Plank just does not have the gravity to sell those lines, but, like, the shot itself and the location itself is such an illustration of, like, every way that they had to compress this. They had to compress heat down to, a like, a 96 kilohertz MP3 version of what eventually became heat. And that's going to be our subject next time. Um, I think we're going to be talking about like some of the way these these beats get like better executed. But I think the other thing we're really going to be talking about uh, when we talk about heat is why this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, man has no shortage of ambitious crime films. Uh, he has no shortage of ambitious dramas. This is the one that's most widely cited as like his masterpiece, his definitive work. Uh, And it's a wildly popular one. Uh, It is, I think, one that gets referenced and remembered in a way that a lot of his other work uh, does not. And so I think some of the question of Heat is, why does this break through and become an enduring uh, classic when so many other great films, like maybe even most notably Thief, uh, get relegated to like, you know, cinephile favorite or cult hit or something, Mm -hmm. but like they don't get that... Uh, cachet and I think part of my answer would be heat is also returned to man's more like sociological interests Uh, that he is that kind of filmmaker and like through the lens of like dudes rocking with guns and chasing Mm -hmm. each other down Wilshire Boulevard with like AR-15s also is like but really I want to talk about America right I have some things to say and they end up being worth hearing, not not revelatory, but yeah, uh, like definitely standing apart in the in the genre. Uh, so I think we're going to be looking at that stuff uh, in heat as we see how some of these same beats uh, are 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 hit more effectively there, uh, now, but also the stuff that's restored. Now, just very quickly, now Dia, you still have not watched Heat yet, right? I have not watched Heat yet. So I am really anxious to see what you have to see as a <laughs> as the only person. On this podcast, certainly, and one of maybe 20 people in the world who saw L.A. take down before they saw Heat. I, I cannot wait to see what your reaction is to it. Yeah, no, I'm, I am excited because, like, at this point, I mean, at this point, this movie has been built up for, for how, oh, many, no. how many years 20, has that been? Almost 25 years, 25 yeah. Years. Like, 25 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting. Especially because masterpiece, magnum opus, greatest work, like the number of like you know accolades that Heat has gotten. Um, I try to try and I don't understand how you don't get curious when you're going down on a dude and he starts talking about a movie. Like at least want to know what that movie was. No, I'd want to hear more because there's like you know when it's like 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 you know a dozen guys, you just be like, no, no, I'm I'm fuck this movie to hell. So I'm tired I'm, of this shit. I'm tired I'm of hearing this. So fucking tired of hearing. It's killing the heat. mood. Um, you know, it's like IPA again. Like, if you just, God damn you just it. haven't had the right one. No, it's just like <laughs> it might actually be the IPA of movies. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you haven't had this this craft IPA is the one you want. No, fuck off. Well, I guess all of that will be answered uh, on the next manhunting. Uh, until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to Waypoint Plus and uh, putting up with our extremely 
specific brand of bullshit uh, back next month with heat. Till then, peace. Peace.